Episode 6, Bring Me Her Heart. This is Casey James. I don't know where exactly I am. I don't know what's going on. There's a lot I don't know. But I'm going to figure it out. The whole filing cabinet slides to the side, with a loud screaming sound, which echoes in the mostly empty basement. Behind it, there is a hole in the wall. Not an archway, not a doorway, a ragged-edged hole leading into a tunnel. It's dark, so I can't see much more than that. That looks promising, says Deacon, because of course he does. He gets out his flashlight and flicks it on. The beam of light shines down the empty tunnel. Nope, I say. No, it really doesn't. It looks like a terrible idea. Your not-a-ghost friends said we needed to find stairs going down, says Deacon. And we will. Nice, safe stairs somewhere in town, maybe. Is there a library? There must be a library. Or something. But not a random tunnel going who knows where in the basement of a house where we've already found a creepy book and a mirror that talks. There aren't even stairs in there. Deacon looks thoughtful, but he's still shining the flashlight into the tunnel, so I add, Last time we went into some sort of underground labyrinth. You ended up tied to an altar by cultists. And then there was an earthquake. Right, yeah says Deacon. But there are no cultists here, Casey. It's safe. As if to prove him wrong, the eerie sound of far-off chanting wells up from the darkness of the tunnel. I give Deacon a very sceptical look. Would you rather go back outside with the cultists? He asks. Put like that, he has a point. I would not rather go outside although the fog is almost as much of a worry to me right now as the cultists and the horned man. Not really, I admit. And there's still that horse thing upstairs. I can't hear the crashing and the hoof-claw sounds from down here, which should be reassuring, but it only makes me more nervous about running into the thing. Deacon looks at me with his eyebrows raised, waiting for the obvious conclusion to come to me. I sigh and nod. Fine, I say. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Or whatever. There are no stairs. The tunnel slopes gradually downward before levelling out, curving around underneath itself like some sort of stone Ouroboros. The faint sound of chanting doesn't get any louder, like it's still far, far away, but the air gets cooler and more humid, and the walls of the tunnel are 
odd. There's no other way to describe them. At first, I think it's just that we've moved from a worked, man-made tunnel to a more natural cave, with stalagmites and stalactites and rocky projections, but it's not. It's not just the normal sort of rocks that you'd expect in a cave wall. Instead, the tunnel wall sort of folds and stretches until it has these solid ripples along it that look for all the world like tree trunks. Stone tree trunks, crowded along the edges of the path, with branches leaning and hanging overhead. I halfway expect to hear the rustle of leaves, but it's eerily silent, except for that far-off, breathy sigh of chanting voices. We walk in silence for a long time. I don't know how long. I slip into a sort of fugue state, just listening to our footsteps and staring at the patch of light ahead, cast by Deacon's flashlight, and the rippling, moving shadows of the stone trees. I don't notice when the fog creeps up from the ground, the slow, swirling, silent mist that seeps out between what are now very clearly tree trunks. I don't notice until it's risen to curl about our knees and obscure the glittering crystal flowers that are peering out from between the roots of those stone trees. Hang on, I say to Deacon, putting a hand on his shoulder to stop him. Does this not seem weird to you? Oh, Casey says Deacon's voice from up ahead, amongst the trees. You really do need to learn to pay attention, don't you? I can't see anyone there, but his voice is unmistakable. The Deacon holding the flashlight turns a pale, wide-eyed face to me and says, Yes, yes it does. By unspoken agreement, we turn around to go back. And by go back, what I really mean is we turn to flee the scene as fast as possible. But behind us, there is no path. There is no dark, narrow, cave-like corridor, and there is no path through the forest of petrified trees and crystal flowers that surrounds us, crowding in as if the walls, trees, whatever, are leaning and shuffling closer. Overhead there are branches overhanging, drooping under the weight of glittering crystal fruit and softly clinking leaves. I spin back around, although I keep one hand on Deacon's shoulder, in the vain hope that touching him will stop anything weird from happening and replacing him with some alternate version of himself. Now, now, is that any sort of gratitude? Asks Deacon's voice, from the darkness among the stone trees. I still can't see him there, in spite of the fact that my Deacon spins to face the spot where the voice is coming from, and shines his flashlight in that direction. There is nothing there besides stone tree trunks, 
and the gathering mist around our feet. Casey, what is that? Asks Deacon. My Deacon, not the invisible one in the dark. I don't know, I say. But I think we should keep moving. I don't like the fog. Of all the things I don't like about this, the fog is not the top of my list. Mutters Deacon. There is laughter from the shadows. <laughs> Weird, almost dissonant laughter. But nothing else. So Deacon and I start down the path again. I try not to wonder if we are on the same path, or even moving in the same direction after all of that spinning around. We walk into the stone forest. The further we walk, the more it resembles a forest, for all the trees are still made of stone. The chanting has faded to nothing, and I'm grateful for it, even if it means that, other than our own footsteps, the whispering, impossible stone leaves of the impossible petrified trees is all I can hear. I do not hear echoes behind us, as if there were a third set of footsteps. I don't. I hope I don't. I am just beginning to wonder how far we can possibly walk through this place before something happens, even if that something is cultists or monsters finding us when our path leads us into a clearing, or maybe a room, a cave, an open, roughly circular space, ringed with stone tree trunks, and lit by a multitude of thick, off-white candles, set on every available flat surface, slowly burning down, and dripping wax. In the centre of the space is a claw-footed bathtub, with a woman asleep in the bath. Her head is leaned back on the edge of the bathtub, long, dark hair trailing to the ground, and her feet poke out of the bath at the other end, elegantly draped on the edge of the tub. Her toenails are painted a dark red like congealed blood, and she has a locket on a silver chain around her neck. The rest of her body is hidden under the milky water of the bath. For all I know, it's actually milk. But it could just be some sort of salts or bath oil or something. And the rose petals floating on the surface. They are, expectations aside, not all red petals. There are pink ones, and the orangey peach coloured ones, and white petals as well. A whole rainbow of flowers. Or perhaps they're leaves. Red and gold and silvery white. And not flower petals at all. Fallen leaves on the surface of a pond. And a drowned woman lying there like a Rosalka. Pale and awful. Deacon and I have both stopped walking by this point. We're just sort of standing there. Staring at the woman in the bathtub. Do you think we should wake her up? Asks Deacon quietly. I 
glance at him, then back at her, and I shrug. Wake the Rosalka? That might not be a good idea. I don't say that. Instead I say, normally I'd say yes, but normally I wouldn't be walking through a forest of stone trees, somewhere underground, in someone else's dream. After a ghost turned into a giant snake and tried to drown me, and cultists tried to sacrifice you to something that definitely isn't a deity I want anything to do with. So, I don't know. Maybe not? He shines a flashlight at her, in spite of the candles. Doesn't look like she's going to drown, he admits. Yeah. I say. I still think she looks like she already has. Between the flickering glow of the candles, the shadows behind the stone trees look deeper. Like there's something there. Not a creature, I mean, but space. Like it touches other worlds, other realms. Like I could walk into those shadows and come out somewhere else entirely. Behind the stone tree trunks, I can see gleaming trees of silver, pale and shining in the dim moonlight that, impossibly, is shining down from some unseen sky. The wood is strange. It seems to be both present and not, full of reflections and shadows, like looking through a kaleidoscope or a crystal prism. Further in the tree trunks are gold and faceted crystal, and gleaming black stone like ice. They almost seem to glow, capturing the light and reflecting it back. To look into the forest itself, I have to look past the trees, past the multicolored light they're casting into the fog. If I do that, though, I can see that there are paths between them, faint, shadowed pathways where the fog curls and whispers, wide enough to walk down. I can almost see the edges of one of them here, and in the distance, there's the gleam of something that might be water. A lake, maybe. The ocean. Casey! Says Deacon. His voice is overly loud and very close to my ear. I think that maybe this is not the first time he's said something. Although I have no memory of hearing anything else he might have said. I blink a few times and turn away from the endless twilight forest of gold and silver trees and impossible moonlight. What? I ask. Oh, good. He says. You went all pale for a moment there, like you're going to pass out or dissolve. Dissolve. A shudder crawls its way up my spine, and I shake my head a bit. I'm fine, I say, but the truth is that I am not, in fact, 
fine. There is still fog curling around our feet, and somewhere just on the edge of hearing there is music, wild and mournful and strange, and the drowned woman in the bathtub looks like she's stirring. Something rustles in the shadows of the stone forest, and the crystal flowers on the floor glint through the fog, as if they'd moved, as if the flower heads had turned just a little to watch us. There are footsteps approaching too, oddly loud in the quiet of the clearing. Deacon and I both look up just as the lumberjack walks into the space on the opposite side of the bathtub. He is absurdly tall, well over six foot, and as dark-haired as the woman in the tub, but with a smiling, genial face that looks as if it would be right at home in some old English pub, drinking craft beers or cider. His clothes make me think of a Robin Hood film, and he has an enormous axe strapped to his back. Well, hello there, he says. I recognize his voice from the conversation upstairs between Constable Delaney and his friend Morris, the man with the impressive moustache. I suppose if he shaved the moustache off, Morris would look a bit like this guy, although he wasn't nearly as tall, so it can't actually be him. Hi, says Deacon, with a slightly awkward little wave of one hand. Yeah, hi, I echo. Found our sleeping beauty, I see, says the lumberjack, nodding at the woman in the bathtub. I am so confused right now. I just nod and wait. Is she all right? asks Deacon, because of course he does. The lumberjack shrugs. Hard to say, really. She's cursed. Won't wake up until someone finds her heart and brings it to her, which seems unlikely. But she seems okay for now. I'd check on her every day or two to make sure she's not revenanting any. Revenanting? I ask, although I have a horrible suspicion that I know what he's going to say. Waking up, he says with a smile and a bit of a shrug. You know how it is. She's got no heart of her own. So anything could slip inside her and walk around. No harm to it if she's just a ghost or whatnot, but you got some bad sorts down here sometimes. I stare at him for a few seconds. Then I ask, Does that happen a lot? Fair bit, he says. Between us, the drowned woman stirs again, and then her eyes open. There are sullen, burning red, like wine and tar and dying embers, and they lock immediately on my face. A small smile curves her lips. Why hasn't anyone found her heart yet? Asks Deacon. Kezia Gilman ate it, I say still making eye contact with the drowned woman. 
The smile on her mouth widens, almost a smirk now, and it's so familiar, but I don't know where from. The lumberjack gives me a strange look, although he nods. That's what I heard, he says. Can't say I know for certain. We stare at one another for a few seconds, then I say, How did I know that? What did you say your name was? Says the lumberjack, overly casual. Like, there's a right and a wrong answer to the question. It doesn't matter, though, because the woman in the bathtub stands up right then and climbs out of the bath. She is beautiful and completely naked, aside from that locket, and her hair moves in the air as if she were underwater. She looks like Kezia Gilman, if Kezia were that three days dead pale with burning red eyes and a hungry mouth like the void between stars. I guess she doesn't look that much like Kezia, really. It's just something about the cheekbones. The lumberjack says, No. And swings his axe, pulling it off his back and sweeping it through the air in a single motion. The drowned woman ducks. The axe swings through the space where her neck should have been, and impossibly fast. She ducks and turns and hisses at the lumberjack. The fog swirls, rising like flood water, and above us the branches of the stone trees bend down towards the lumberjack, beating and whipping at him, even though there is no wind to move them. If wind could even move the branches of stone trees, which it shouldn't be able to. Deacon picks up one of the thick, heavy candles and tries to hit the revenant with it. She ducks again and spins to face him, which is distinctly not good, in my opinion. The mist has crawled up her body like some sort of ectoplasmic creature, so she now looks like she's wearing a sort of misty nightgown, but her eyes are still red and her mouth is still a smirking, sucking void of shadows and nothingness, and the air smells of tar and bitter almonds and myrrh when she looks at me. I don't know why I think of the jar, the clay jar from the crypt that I have been lugging around with me this whole time. It just pops into my mind suddenly, with the thought that it might help and a squirmy sort of sensation in the back of my brain where Walker and my doubts about Deacon are sharing space. Maybe it's Walker helping, or maybe it's just intuition. I don't know. Maybe it's like that thing where your life flashes in front of your eyes as you're about to die. The Revenant is certainly looking at me as if I'm about to die, slowly and painfully. So I hold the jar out between me and her, and I hope really hard that I'm right. She pauses, hesitates just for a fraction of a second, but it's enough. I break the wax seal and open the jar. If I thought her mouth felt like the void between stars, I was wrong. 
The revenant's mouth is hungry darkness, but the open jar is the void, like a black hole in the dark, pulling everything towards it. My heartbeat thunders in my ears, far too loud, but behind it there's a sound like the swell of waves in some far-off alien ocean. Fog and shadows start to spool up and into the jar. Then there's a wet thwack, and the revenant's head falls from her body in a spray of blood. You can close that up now, says the lumberjack. Numbly, I close the jar. The lumberjack nods at me and says, Appreciate the assistance. Not often we get himself possessing anyone, but he makes a right quick revenant when he does. Gave me this last time. And he pulls the collar of his shirt aside to show me a massive scar tissue along his throat and his collarbone. It looks like some sort of wild animal tried to maul him. The lumberjack turns to meet Deacon's rather shocked gaze and adds, Give me a hand with her? I guess that Deacon nods, or maybe he just stumbles forward to help. Between the two of them, they lift the woman's headless body back into the bathtub, and then the lumberjack picks her head up and carefully places it onto the body, matching up the stump to her severed neck where his axe had chopped through it. In front of my eyes, the skin seals over, and her head reattaches. Deacon makes a gagging sound. Does this happen a lot? I ask, finally. Fair bit, the lumberjack says. If you happen to find it, bring me your heart and we'll sort all this out. Meantime, I reckon you folks should head back out. Stay on the path, though. Never know if himself is nearby after something like this. The walk back up through the stone forest takes a very long time. We do not speak. Not even once we get back to the basement and climb up those sixty stairs to the kitchen. We stay on the path. Silently and nervously, we stumble to the front of the house, unlock the door, and begin the long tramp back to the village. I'm not looking forward to the questions that will inevitably come our way, and from the look of him, Deacon isn't either. Or maybe he's just still processing. I know I am. No rest for the wicked, though. Nor for us, either. I think we're being followed. Again. Again.